Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Dr. Doreen Marshall, who is the Vice President of Mission Engagement at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I like to apologize in advance for the audio. Her audio is a little bit lower than mine, and so you might find yourself adjusting. I didn't realize that or hear it in the recording, so I just want to make you aware. With that said, let's hop into the episode. Uh, Dr. Marshall, I'm excited to have you on the podcast, and I, I want to start off with kind of a strange question because I see that you have a bachelor's in English and philosophy. And I was wondering how that background in English and philosophy influences uh, how you approach helping those who are struggling with suicidality or suicide prevention or just your approach in, he in helping other services provide suicide prevention services. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a great question. And I should say probably like many people in the world, you know, what I thought I wanted to do with my life at uh, 18 or 19 was very different than uh, what I ended up doing. But I do think, I, I always knew at some point I was going to gravitate toward a helping field. And I think where that background helps me in the work I do is that there's a lot of importance in learning people's stories. And I think when you think about how we understand our own story or our own lived experience, um, and certainly in how we understand suicide, there is something to understanding kind of the narrative or the, the um, belief system of somebody who is struggling, kind of what's important to them, what their values are, and, and what's leading to this moment where they're feeling hopeless about their life. All right, so this really resonates for a number of reasons. Last night, me and my girlfriend were watching um, Letters to Juliet, which is this romantic comedy. And at the end, I'm like, you know, they're not going to make it clearly. Like, she's too ambitious, he's too ambitious, and they're going to end up in the same cycle that, uh, that led to why she broke up with her first boyfriend. And then I asked my girlfriend what she liked about it, and she goes, I like her persistence. I like that she kept going. And then I like that the girls came together to figure out solutions on how to connect with the people who wrote the letters. And I was like, are we watching the same thing? <laughs> but you know, what stood out to me was how we could be watching the same thing and derive two different meanings from it. And, and so for you, Dr. Marshall, is that the importance of helping people learn their story or their narrative to, to maybe help them reframe it and also learn that there are other ways to see what they've experienced. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we talk about someone who is having a struggle with, say, suicidal thoughts or a suicidal crisis, you know, what we should remember is that they're, they're thinking through pain right? That, that what they're feeling is pain. And that, as we all know, anytime we experience any kind of pain, it can tend to affect our thinking and how we see things and what we see as possibilities. And so, you know, I think it's both important to understand someone's story in terms of how they got to that place of, of feeling hopeless. But then also, I think, 
to recognize that we are outside of the person who is struggling. And sometimes being outside of somebody, you can see options they can't see, but it's also really hard to know their story firsthand. And so I think anytime we're working with someone who's struggling, it really is a collaboration, right? It's two people. I'm outside of you, so I may be more objective and see solutions that you can't see at the moment, um, but you know your own story and you know your own narrative, and it's kind of the meeting, meaning and meeting of those two things. There's two things I want to highlight. I love one that you brought up collaboration because I feel like here in, in America and some other developing countries, we have such an individualistic mindset of like, we're going to do it ourselves, pull ourselves up by the bootstrap, you know, go figure it out. Um, and, and so this idea of collaboration, teamwork, you know, whether it's with a mentor, a life coach, a therapist, or, or you know, going to a group or talking to your neighbors, like it, we all need to work with somebody else to help us navigate life and, and get through it. But I, I want to go back a little bit because you, you mentioned pain and how we are listening through pain. I thought that was a, a, a profound statement because uh, even in that movie we watched last night, there, were, there was a, a, a scene where uh, the girl experienced rejection and she was like, oh, that's so painful. And I think we kind of diminish emotional pain over physical pain, right? Where I played football for... If I broke a leg, it was like, oh, that's so painful. And it was okay to kind of cry about it. But when we experience emotional pain, we 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 think it's uh it's, it's a sign of weakness. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and I think you know, you've just captured it in that I think some of this is shaped by how society interacts with us when we are in pain. I think that is getting better. You know, we we recently did a Harris poll where, you know, people are talking they see mental health and physical health as, as being equal. And that's a good thing. But I think when it comes to interacting with people in pain, sometimes, you know, the invisible pain, the pain that people can't see is, is hard for the folks outside that person to understand, you know, because they may see somebody who is functioning in their life, who, you know, is kind of carrying out their day-to-day -day activities, but what's going on inside them is, is the struggle and, and a lot of emotional pain. And so I think, you know, what you're saying is right, that while society may shape that a bit in terms of how we talk about and act around emotional versus physical pain, I do think that's changing. I think the more people that speak openly about their mental health and about their struggles, I think we're starting to see a society that's becoming much more receptive and open to having those kinds of conversations. Absolutely. And you know, you've been in this, been in this, <laughs> uh, you know, you've been practicing as a psychologist for over 20 years and in this, this field, especially in suicide prevention and postvention over 20 years. Uh, and part of it is, I I'm assuming because you yourself have, have experienced uh, you, uh, grief over uh, losing someone to suicide. Uh, can you speak a little bit to that or to, you know, what your why you find such meaning in this kind of work? Yeah, so I entered the field in terms of clinical work um, in the mid-90s, just to give you a kind of a sense. And when I was in graduate school, um, someone very close to me died by suicide. And I think the most shocking thing for me about that 
was that here I was training to be a clinician that was going to be working with folks at risk for suicide. And I didn't really understand a whole lot about it. And at that time, there wasn't a lot in training programs about it either. So there was like this moment in time where both to understand um, kind of what happened to this person I cared about, but also I think just to prepare myself as a clinician, I felt like I needed to learn like what happened here and how do I go forward being in a role to help prevent suicide? How do I go forward in a way that's responsible and ethical and, and informed? And honestly, that kind of shaped a career that that took me forward because what I started to realize, and I think this is what society is, is starting to realize now, is that you know no one is immune from a struggle with suicide. And it's not somebody else, right? It's, it's us, it's the people we love, it's our neighbors, it's our coworkers. And I think, you know, when I first entered the field, there was still this sense of, oh, that happens over there, but not over here. And having um, experienced a personal loss that really not only changed my perspective about that, but I think really made me want to lean in more and understand um, and so, you know, like many of us that are in this work, we've been impacted. Um, many of us live with mental health conditions. Many of us um, have supported family or friends or even ourselves had a struggle. So, you know, I think it's really the conversation has really become about how do we help each other? How do we help ourselves um, versus how do we help somebody else that's remote and, and distant from me? You know, um, unfortunately, we lose 45,000 people annually to suicide and many more struggle each year. And um, so for me, it kind of felt like a, a professional responsibility to understand. Um, and once I started going down that, that track, there wasn't that many people focused on it, quite frankly. And I feel pretty um, just privileged, but also very proud of the work we do at AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, because I think that's that's the charge we have is really to make raise awareness, but also help prevent this leading cause of death. Dr. Marshall, I want to peel back the layer a little bit on that moment of, you know, where your friend in graduate school ended their life. What is it that you, was there something that you needed or would have liked to have happened in terms of support from the program or from your peers to help you move through that because I'm imagining at that time, mid nineties there, like you said, there wasn't much research, much talk you know, there wasn't a lot around it, you know, that you, there, when you're looking back, there were so many other things that they may have been able to do that would have helped you and the class, uh, heal through that, that moment. Yeah, and I should clarify. So um, the person who died, I was in a personal relationship with. They were not a fellow student, um, but I was in a graduate program when it happened, and it was a very small graduate program where everyone knew everyone. And it um, once word got out that um, I had lost someone, the whole department knew. Right, it happened very quickly that people knew. And I would say that you know when I look back in hindsight. Uh, I was really fortunate to be surrounded by just some really caring people who got it. Um, people who just understood right away that at its core, when you lose someone 
regardless of how you lose them, um, it's a, a grief experience, right? It's an experience of loss, but also that losing someone to suicide brings with it some um, different challenges for, for people who uh, love the person who died. You know, most uh, suicide loss survivors talk about this sense of kind of going over their last interactions with the person and really trying to understand, was there anything I could have done? Um, and also grieving a kind of a missed opportunity to help, you know, and wondering, you know, why was it that my loved one didn't reach out or didn't tell me what was happening in the instances where they didn't, you know? And in the instances where they did, you know, I think people are often like, well, when did this person decide that they were going to go from thinking about this to doing something, right? I always say like a lot, a lot of times people talk about their pain, right? But we don't have in our mind that this could, this person could possibly die by suicide. And so, you know, I was fortunate to be in a department where people were very supportive, where they cared. I got connected to a support group very early in my grief process, and that made a very big difference for me personally. Um, I think the other thing I would just say, just in looking back, um, I remember experiencing this, and, and this was a person I was very close to that died. I, I thought, how can I possibly be a mental health professional when I have a loss this close to me? Like, how could I possibly do this? I'm not, I, I can't, obviously I can't see it when it's in my own life, let alone with somebody else. And I was ready to quit grad school at that point. And I had a professor who told me, you know, well, look, just take a little time, think about it. And, um, but don't, don't quit anything right now. And I was really glad in hindsight that he said that because I don't know what else I would have done. Like there was part of me that needed so badly to understand what had happened that um, being able to do that in the context of a supportive graduate environment to do my coursework and also be grieving and people were supportive, um, I just made all the difference. So I'm glad I didn't go it alone. Yeah, I love when you shared that you felt surrounded by love and also got involved in a grief group because I, when I think about the word surrounded, I always think about it in a negative term. Like I feel surrounded, like I'm trapped. Um, but that, but the idea that we can be surrounded by love. And when you look at animals like zebras and there's some type of injury to one of the animals, the first thing they do is surround, uh, you know, the, the harmed animal and, you know, take care of it and groom it. And, and so I just want to highlight that for the listeners out there of like, how important it is when you're experiencing some type of uh, trauma or grief, because even if you haven't lost someone to suicide, just any type of loss, any type of grief to, to find a way in which you can get surrounded by loved ones or get involved in a grief group instead of feeling like you have to go this alone. Yeah. And, and what was, I think, you know, when I think about how a support group was helpful for me, there were people in that group, who were further along in their grief journey. And just knowing that and, and seeing that these were folks that were talking about the things I was thinking and feeling, and, and but they were doing it, they were surviving it, right? It, it gave me hope. It thought, okay, there's a path here and I'll have to find my own path, but I also know that there are people who have walked that path. 
So, you know, that was really helpful in terms of support groups is, is finding a place where I could talk and it was safe to talk about what I was experiencing, but also knowing that I wasn't alone, that other people had traveled a similar journey. It was it was really vital looking back. Yeah, I mean, and even now, like you said, you have over 20 years of experience and you've heard so many stories that I'm sure have been heartbreaking and um I, I just can't imagine the different emotions that are experienced uh, when hearing the different stories. What are things that you intentionally do, Dr. Marshall, to on a daily basis to kind of reset and come back to neutral or just ground yourself and, and, and get back into your body after spending so much energy and time uh, being available for other people? A really good question. And I don't think it's any one thing. I think it's having kind of a strategy that incorporates lots of different things that um, kind of soothe you, but also fill you up, right? I always say you can't pour from an empty cup, right? And when people need connection and when they need support, you know, it's hard to do that if you're running on empty yourself. And so you know, I make sure that I surround my my life with things that keep me healthy, right? Um, I get, a, I, I'm kind of really uh, militant about my sleep. Um, and one of the reasons is because I know I'm better at everything when I'm well-rested. So I'm, I'm really kind of structured about making sure I, I go to bed at by a certain time. Um, those things really help. But I think, you know, just the basics, getting some physical exercise during the day, getting out to see some sunlight, surrounding yourself with people who are supportive, you know, that you don't have to deal with your own struggles alone. Um, certainly, I would recommend, you know, therapy and support and professional help for, for those that find it helpful. But I think just kind of having an overall strategy is helpful. And having people that you can go to, um, both in the work and outside of the work, when you're having um, a time that that where you're needing a little bit more support. Um, the other thing is like, I try and make sure that I bring things into my life that, that help me kind of stay connected and grounded. I'm a big music fan and, you know, like to have music, listening to music a lot, like to have those connections to, um, people's stories, uh, both both positive ones, but also the challenging ones that have led to positive outcomes for people. You know, there's a lot of hope in the work too. Um, many people survive suicide attempts and never go on to die by suicide. And so I say that only because, you know, it, you could think the work is only difficult, but there's lots of stories of resilience and hope in that too. I love that, that whole idea of bringing things into your life that gets you grounded. Uh, one of the co conversations that uh, me and my friends have been having lately are in, uh, around books in that we find ourselves reading more classical literature than self-help books. I, I find that self-help books um, make me uh, evaluate life too much. It gets me too much in my head where when I I'm reading classical literature, I feel a little less lonely in the world and, and more connected. And, and I don't know if that's been your experience or, or if you read books as a way of part of your, you know, self-soothing technique and filling yourself back up. 
Yeah, I do. And I, I probably read a combination of, of kinds of books, but I do agree with you, like figuring out kind of what the thing it is that that nourishes you. You know, there is something about getting lost in a story and in, in, in a story um, that's either a fiction story or even a biography, a story about somebody else and really kind of um, learning about that person's uh, life and or that character's life and and what they navigate. I think that can be a way. It also adds, I think, to overall understanding. Um, so the part of me that studied English literature, you know, says that I think those stories really, in a way, give us a glimpse into what people struggle with. You know, we all have hopes and fears and dreams and things that make us angry. And sometimes connecting through books um, helps us get a glimpse of what others experience. Working at the foundation, you know, what I've heard is that there's a typical uptick in suicides in January, like the whole, you know, December suicide is kind of a myth. And, and no one seems to have an idea why. And my theory is partly around the expectations that come from the holidays where, you know, you're like, wow, I wonder how much people really care about me. And and, and, you know, how awesome this year is going to be and the media telling you how cool it's going to be. And then when it doesn't quite live up, there's, there's like this, it's almost like a crash. It's almost like, you know, December is, is Red Bull and caffeine. And then at some point you got a crash and that is uh, January. Uh, have you found anything in, in terms of this, you know, your work supporting the uptick or what people are experiencing emotionally in January? Well, it is interesting because, you know, the, the, it is a myth that, that suicide rates are higher around the holidays. Actually, we see higher rates uh, later in the year, such as late spring, than we do during the holiday season. But I think you're making an important point that um, many of us thought about even with the pandemic over the last few years. And it's that you know, when we're, we feel like we're not alone with something, right, we can connect with other people. So for example, 2020, we're all going through the pandemic together. And in that year, we actually saw suicide rates go down, contrary to popular belief. But I think what happens, and this is speculation, of course, is what you're saying is that as things return, life returns to its day-to-day, -day, people go back to feeling alone. And I think it could be that something similar happens around the holiday season, kind of like, you know, we're all kind of in this together. We know other people may not be as happy around the holidays. Some people, you know, kind of make, you know, make it known that the holidays aren't their favorite time of year. And you feel maybe some less alone. But then, you know, as time goes on and people get back to their day to day, you know, you know, some people find that that doesn't that sense of togetherness doesn't continue. I mean, it's speculation, but it's certainly, um, I think what you're talking about is an important idea to, for us to think about, like, how can we help people keep that feeling of connection throughout the year? Yeah, because it seems like the, the running thread that I've, I've had or noticed with all the different psychologists and authors that I've had on is when people want to end their lives, it seems rooted around three Ps, uh, people, purpose, and pain. And so do you have any suggestions on how people can make it more of a lifestyle of being connected versus 
waiting to the holidays to get connected because i think that's also part of the issue is people just are just expecting the holidays to bring about this connection and bonding and family and friend time and then the rest of the year they kind of let it atrophy yeah well you know it's interesting you bring this up today because i was just reading an article this week um and I was talking about kind of like basically the idea was like how to make friends, you know, and, and um, it was basically geared toward people who, who feel like they don't have a strong friend network. And one of the things the article was talking about is kind of accepting that it's going to be awkward, like when you reach out to someone. And I think that there is some truth to that, right? That like, you know, when we think about feeling isolated, you know, we often assume we're the only ones feeling that way and not realizing that there are other people out there who feel isolated, who are looking for connection too. Um, but it can feel awkward to reach out to people, whether you're reaching out to someone to connect with for yourself, whether you're trying to provide some support to someone, you know, it can initially feel a little bumpy. We have a, a campaign we've partnered with the Jed Foundation on called Seize the Awkward, Seize, S-E-I-Z-E. And it's like this idea, like sometimes these conversations are hard. It's hard to admit, hey, you know, I'm feeling really alone or I really need more connection in my life. It's hard to admit that. But if we can kind of, you know, push through that awkwardness and realize not only are we not alone, but that there are other people out there who are looking for the same things. We're looking for that connection and who will meet us, who will support us um, when we say, you know, I'm struggling, I'm feeling alone. But it's funny you bring that up because I do think that that is part of the dynamic is kind of giving ourselves permission to say, okay, I may not do this perfectly, but I'm not going to give up. I'm going to try and reach out and find people I feel close to and connected to. And that that might take some effort, but I'm also going to allow people to do that for me. I'm going to be open when people try and reach out to me and have these important conversations. It's <laughs> about a couple of weeks ago, I'm walking through a used bookstore and uh, this guy just starts talking to me about the books that I had in my hands. He's like, oh, what you got there? And I, you know, I, I kind of rattled off the titles and as much as, cause I just moved into a new neighborhood, as much as I've been wanting to find connection and make new friends in a new neighborhood, here was an opportunity where this guy was talking to me, trying to connect but I had my guard up the whole time. And I was like, what's his angle? What does he want? Is he trying to sell me on Jesus or, you know, kind of deal. And then I just walked away and I was like, why did I do that? Like, I've been asking the universe for a connection. It presented itself. And then I put my guard up and, and walked away. Why, you know, why do you think it's so hard for us to reach out? Cause I would imagine it's the same reason why it's challenging for people to call the nine eight eight number or any of the international suicide numbers that I always list in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think there's kind of like, you know, there's an inherent bias we have. Like we, we tend to remember kind of the interactions with strangers that did not go well. Right. Um, whether our own or ones we hear about in the news and we don't, we don't really think about that. Everyone that's now in our life, we had to meet at some point, right. That had to, those relationships had to start somewhere. And so, you know, I think it's a really interesting point. And when people struggle, particularly with their mental health and or thoughts of suicide, I, I think that can be a really isolating experience and one that people sometimes feel some shame about. 
Um, and, and so there might be this sense of, well, even if I reach out, people aren't going to be receptive or they're not, they're not going to meet me where I am. Um, and, you know, I think that's changing. I think the more we become a society that's understanding about mental health, um, I do think that is changing. I, I think we saw a big change as we started to hear about celebrities who nobody thought any, you know, never put them and the idea of suicide in the same sentence. Um, when we started to see that, hey, these are people that are in the public eye and they struggle too with loneliness. You know, they they struggle with the things that I may struggle with too. I think it helped break down some walls. And, you know, my hope is that that, that continues, those conversations where people are being open and honest about how they're, what they're experiencing, how they're experiencing it, um, and how it's impacting them emotionally. I, I do hope that continues. We also saw a lot happen at the early parts of the pandemic, where people were talking about their mental health um, in a new way. You know, we were all worried about um, our physical health, but then we realized, well, but we all need connection too. So how do we navigate this as a society? And we did things like Zoom and, you know, um, found other ways to connect when connecting in person wasn't possible. Yeah. Well, you know, I know that you're a mom. How many kids do you have? I have two. And so having two kids and, you know, I'm sure you're busy and the kids are busy and they're so involved. And, and I would imagine like, that's a challenge for a lot of parents where you want your kids to take advantage of all of the different resources in the neighborhood, whether it's you know, going to school and then going to practice for a sport and then, you know, practicing piano and all these different events, but also recognizing that there's that need for the family to sit down and and connect, whether that's over dinner or breakfast in the morning. What what are those guideposts that you kind of have in place for connection with the family? I mean, I think what you're bringing up is really important. And I think, you know, when you start from a place of prioritizing everyone's mental health, right, that gets easier. So, you know, if you kind of go into this with the idea of, you know, what really matters is how well we're all coping with life, right? It matters more than grades. It matters more than activities. I think if you go into it with that, then it's it's easier to see where there may be things that are challenging to mental health in not a good way, where there may be times when you need to connect more as a family. I know I, I'm somebody, I'm, you know, part of my uh, background and heritage is that we connect around meals a lot. That's kind of how I was raised. And it's also how I'm raising my kids. And I find that if you don't make time for those things, you won't hear the conversations you need to hear, or, you know, you really need to create that the space. Um, but I get like most parents are way busy. I find time in the car, you know, where you're both kind of um, literally a captive audience, right? You're in traffic, can't go anywhere. It is often a time when I have some of the best conversations with my family, with my kids. Um, but this idea of that, you know, um, take space and make space, right? Like when I need connection that I, I reach out to those of my family and my friends, but also um, to make space for it in your life, to not be so overscheduled that there's no time for that kind of connection. Yeah, my my friends who have kids, they call it 
you know, getting the tea. And, and, and that's basically the time where like after school, the, their kids tell them about all the things that happen in a day. And another friend of mine, she calls it uh, thorns and roses. She says, tell me about your thorns in your day and tell me about the roses in your day. And, and I thought that was, that was very beautiful. Um, part of your work with the American foundation for suicide prevention is, you know, you work with schools, parents, uh, veterans, physicians, businesses, nonprofits, and in terms of teaching them about suicide prevention, what are some ways in which our schools can better, uh, teach our kids suicide prevention or, um, managing emotions or, or dealing with grief or, you know, I, I'm not sure what the question it is to ask here. And, and the reason why I struggle is I, I, I feel like the question determines the answer, but the, and the quality of the question gets the quality of the response. But I, I feel like you may have a sense of what I'm asking here. Yeah, well, I, th I think you're asking something really important. And I think one of the things we talk a lot about in suicide prevention is you don't want to wait until there's a crisis to actually become educated or educate others about mental health and suicide prevention. And I think in schools, there's kind of, there's the kind of a dual responsibility. One is, you know, we should be um, teaching kids about mental health and, and emotions and suicide prevention in an age appropriate way. So starting with really young kids, helping them uh, label their feelings, helping them understand that feelings have a range, right? That there's a difference between being enraged versus being annoyed and giving them language to kind of communicate their feelings and communicate that kind of range of emotions can really be helpful. Um, educating them around seeing um, adults as helpers or seeing knowing who the helpers are in their lives, those things are important from a very young age. But I think the other responsibility we have, particularly as adults, is to make sure we know ourselves what we're looking for when um, a child or teen might be struggling. So we spend a lot of time um, providing education to teachers and other school staff because they're on the front lines, right? They spend a lot of time with our kids. And they may see or hear something or um, get to know a kid in a way that they become much more aware of the struggle than other people's in that other people in that child's life. So, you know, I think it's both. I think it's kind of helping um, kids and, and teens understand about their mental health and understand where to go for support. But then it's also kind of educating the people around them to understand what to look for and how to have these conversations. I definitely see schools becoming much more uh, adept at that where kids walk in a classroom and they tap like a, a, an emotion face, whether it's a happy, like tapping, like what emotion they're feeling as they're walking into the classroom or being able to express it that way. And, and, for, and on some weird level, I think emojis are helping kids learn about their emotions uh, more effectively, you know, just f finding that right smiley face or unsmiley face to express um where they're at that's a great point i hadn't thought about that but that makes lots of sense uh you know yeah i had a question at the top of my head and i forget what i was gonna uh, ask you it, it was something based off what you said creating space even 
Well, I, I will say, I'll take a minute to say this. Um, you know, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, we have chapters in all 50 states. And our chapters are really just what I think of as volunteers at the community level who are out there trying to make a difference, trying to be supportive and also educate others about suicide prevention. So um, you don't need to have any degree or anything to join one of our chapters. You just need to have a willingness to be part of the solution. And many of our chapters have volunteers that have their own lived experience of suicide, um, that have family members that have lost someone to suicide um, or have supported someone through a suicidal crisis. So I just wanted to make a plug for that. Um, and you can learn about our chapters on our website uh, at AFSP.org. But we do have chapters around the country and it's an opportunity for people to get involved in making a difference when it comes to suicide prevention. I love that. Definitely, you know, because to tag on to that, being of service, you know, there's so much talk about, you know, being of service and finding a way to contribute to your community, your society, to the world around you and how much that gives us purpose and meaning in our lives versus, you know, having the mindset of just taking care of me and what I got to do and me, me, me and I, I, I. It's there has to be room for us, our, and even there, um, you know, in your life. Yeah, I think anything that can occasionally take us outside of our own experience and struggles and see the bigger world, you know, it, it can help us understand not only that we're not alone, but that we do have a role in in making things better, making the world better for for not only ourselves, but for others. You know, talking to some people, I've and, and reading some of the books that I've read on mental health and, and and suicide, sometimes this idea of performance comes up, meaning that in social situations, people feel performative, like they have to put on this air, this face, or this they have to be a certain way. And as a result, they don't feel connected. They feel like an imposter. And the amount of energy it takes to be performative instead of being authentic or vulnerable or real, um, it, it exhausts them to the place where at points they want to, they do want to end their lives. Can you, have you done any research or talked about anything around people who feel performative in social situations? Well, I, I do think there, there's a lot of, societal pressure. And I think particularly for our young people, um, you know, they, they're they growing up in a world where social media has existed they, for as long as they've existed. And so, you know, being able to understand that sometimes what people put out there is not the full picture or not the full image of what they experience. You know, I, I would often say to clients that I'd work with, you know, try not to compare your insides to other people's outsides. Um, because, you know, not everyone shares their struggle. And sometimes what we see is like you're saying, it's, it's feels like it's an image to put out, but not really what the person is experiencing. Um, you know, the, the other thing I think is really important. And we talk about this quite a bit that, you know, I think people make assumptions about how others will receive their pain or their vulnerability. And that makes us protective, right? Or even maybe feeling some ashamed that to show it. 
but no one wants to connect with someone who's perfect, right? <laughs> We've all known that person who like never seems to have anything wrong. And it's really hard to connect with that, right? Because that's not life. Life is messy and, you know, it's imperfect. And, you know, when you see someone that's only putting out an image of that, where everything's going well, it makes it really hard to connect because most of us don't, I would say all of us don't have a life where everything goes well all of the time. So, you know, it's, I always encourage people um, that rather than striving for per perfection to really strive for authenticity, right? That you are going to show up in the world as who you are, you know, all, all the things, right? The, the parts that, that are great, the parts that are annoying, all of it, because that's what you want people to connect to. You don't want them to connect to an image that then you can't ever show any vulnerability um, or anything that you're, you're struggling with. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think particularly, you know, social media is also a place of connection for people, but I think it, it can be hard when people may be only putting out one side of their, their images or, or only things that are positive and never really showing the full picture. Dr. Marshall, I, I really appreciate this time. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think would be relevant for my listeners? I think first, I want to thank you for covering this and for having me um, on your show. I, I would also say that, you know, if you're struggling to know there's resources out there that you don't have to go this alone, um, you know, we have the 988 number now, which many people um, may not know about, but you can call that from anywhere in the country and get a trained person to just listen. Um, and most of those calls are resolved um, by someone listening. Um, so if you're worried that, you know, calling is going to enact some kind of crisis response, that's really reserved for the situations where um, there is a crisis and it, you know, there's some danger. But most of the calls, really, you just get a trained listener who's basically able to help you get out what you need to get out and also can help guide you towards some resources. So I do want to mention that because I know you have lots of people listening, and just to never forget, you don't have to do this alone, that there are resources and people who can help support. That's right. Seize the awkward and collaborate. Those are the two phrases I'm going to take away from this. Uh, what are you looking forward to, Dr. Marshall? Oh, gosh. Well, I, um, I'm looking forward to the spring and all of the good work that we're, we have planned for this year. Um, we do uh, campus walks in the spring. Um, we have a number of advocacy events. We have an advocacy team where we advocate for mental health legislation and things that are gonna make mental health more accessible. So I'm looking forward to a really uh, interesting and um, important year for our work. Um, but personally, um, I'm just looking forward to school ending. It's, it's been a busy school year for my kids and I like having them home in the summer. So I'm looking forward to that. I love that. The one parent who actually likes to have their kids at home. That's one. I do. I do. I don't know if that makes me odd, but I do. And then last question I ask this of all my guests, because always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself. What would you say to them, Dr. Marshall? Before you kill yourself, take a minute and remember that that what you're feeling, the intensity of it won't always be this intense. That feelings tend to have a, a kind of a beginning, a peak and an ending. And if you can just get through 
the next bit, just the next while. Give things time to change and reach out for help if you need it. Um, that's what I would say for, before someone kills themselves. Thank you so much, Dr. Marshall. Thank you so much, the listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 988 number or the international suicide hotline numbers that are in each and every single one of the episodes. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Marshall. Thank you. Take care.